The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Welcome to the podcast series, The Gospel of Basic Truth. We are looking at finding where in Scripture we can see the gospel message. In addition to John 3.16, we do this to encourage you in your faith and to give you some additional tools as you witness to family and friends. The message is always the same, but how it's presented uh, sometimes is different, and that's very interesting to look at. Today, we're going to actually look at the Old Testament again. We're going to look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the most quoted of the Psalms in the New Testament, and we see it not only in the Gospels being quoted, but also in Hebrews. The Psalm was written by King David, and that was 3,000 years ago. And he writes about his own suffering, but in that suffering, he describes what looks remarkably like Christ suffering on the cross. And in fact, it's pointed out by the writers of the Gospel. And Jesus actually calls attention to Psalm 22 to tell people that his suffering is in accordance with with Scripture. And uh, What I'm going to do today, I will start by actually reading what Matthew and John had to say about the crucifixion, and then we're going to see the words and phrases in there, and then we'll go to Psalm 22, and you'll say, oh, wow, how did David know? All right, so here we go. This is Matthew 27. We're starting verse 32. As they went out, these are the the guards who are going to crucify Jesus. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he did not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. We're going to see that in Psalm 22. Now, it says they crucified him. Uh, People were crucified. The Roman soldiers would drive a very long uh, nail into their hands and feet. So when it says he's crucified, his hands and feet would be pierced as they were hanging on the cross. Then the soldiers sat down to keep watch over him there. Over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The two robbers were crucified with him, one on either his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him. We're going to see these words again in Psalm 22. Wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with The scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled Jesus in the same way. Before I continue, Jesus was on the cross for six hours, from about nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon when he died. This is a description uh, of of the hours, but from about the sixth hour, 
There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from about noon to three o'clock, there was darkness over the land. The first three hours, the light, you know, sun was shining. People got to see his suffering. The last three hours, they can't see him. He is suffering, but they're not seeing him. The ninth hour, the sun again shines. And about that time, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And somebody ran and got him uh, some sour wine, put it on a sponge, put it up on a reed for him to drink. And shortly after that, Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So one of the last things that he says, as recorded by Matthew, is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, in my uh, secular career, uh, living in Southern California, I worked with a lot of uh, professionals, uh, people in different, um, uh, you know, advanced degree kind of professions, and nobody was a Christian, nobody was saved. Or if they were, they are very quiet about it. Um, I had one guy that I knew quite well who was an actuary, and you know, he, he would throw this verse and say, well, see, Jesus is on the cross, and he doesn't have any faith. He, he's given up. He realizes the wool's been pulled over his eyes. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing he doubts God. And I said to my quote-unquote friend, I thought you didn't believe in Jesus. Well, I don't. But... But if he he did live and he said this, this shows he's doubting. And actually, if that's all you had, I suppose if that's the only verse you ever read, I suppose it could be a reasonable conclusion. But it's wrong. Jesus is citing the first line of Psalm 22. And it is a psalm of great, a story of great suffering to the point of death and how the person is left to suffer even unto death, but does not give up their faith and trust in God. So actually it does quite the opposite. All right, we're going to do just a little bit from uh, John chapter 19, verse 17, we begin. And again, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They crucified him, all right? You know, again, nails piercing hand and feet, and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And again, Pilate wrote out the inscription and put it uh, over the cross. Typically in crucifixion, uh, the charge that the person was dying for, the crime, would be put on a placard over the person's head. So the two thieves on either side would have had a placard that said thief. In the case of Jesus, Pilate wrote down, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified near the city. Uh, And it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. The chief priest uh, of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but write, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, here's the part where we're going to see again in Psalm 22. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one for each of the soldiers, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots 
for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fill scripture, which says, they divided up my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, this is Psalm 22. Now, I'm going to read Psalm 22. It's 31 verses long, and I'm going to read it through in its entirety. Uh, I'll make just a few brief comments. We're going to talk about some things, and then we'll come back and we'll unfold this. So, Psalm 22, starting verse 1. This is what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously, Jesus is calling attention to the bystanders, to the witnesses, to Psalm 22 and how he fulfills that. And he's calling our attention as well to Psalm 22. All right. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people. All right, now here's some words we have just heard in the Gospels. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. I knew I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravenous and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That last verse I just read is verse 21. That is the pivot of this psalm, and this is where everything changes. And we will spend some time on 21 when we come back. Now, 22 through the end. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will, pre- I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Yahweh. 
All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Well, friends, that's poetry, and we'll come back and talk about poetry again. Um, But for right now, this is Psalm 22. Oftentimes, it's helpful to look and make a comparison. Now, it's, it's important to see what David does not say here, because that emphasizes the point that he's making. Let me explain. In Psalm 32, David is again suffering. He's in great pain, but he suffers righteously. And he's confessing, this Psalm 32 is a hymn of confession where he says, I know I am suffering terribly because of my grievous sin. Now, we don't know what that sin is. A lot of people say, well, maybe it's after, you know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah the Hittite. Doesn't say. We aren't told the reason. Other, but what we did, do know is it is another psalm where David is suffering. But this one is different. He is suffering righteously because of his sin. Now, what we just read in Psalm 22, there is no indication that David has done any sin or he is being punished unto death with pain and suffering for sin. He is being, he is having pain and suffering unto death because of these wicked people. Now, let's look at one more psalm of David. Again, he is suffering. This one is different. This is called an imprecatory psalm. If you've never heard of an imprecatory psalm, these are psalms that call down curses on people. Oh, yeah. They're, they are in the Psalter. They, they are in the Psalms. And in this one, David is suffering, and he is calling out to God to punish, to judge, to kill the people that are causing him suffering, his wicked enemies. So David knows you know, how to call out sin, uh, wicked people, and he's not afraid to ask God um, to take these people out, to judge them. So I will tell you, friends, there are other imprecatory psalms in, in, in the book of Psalms, and I've had occasion to, to use them, especially when I'm thinking and praying for my elected and appointed leaders. <clears throat> who, but they need to be wicked. You know, you just can't pray this over somebody. I mean, in every case, it is someone who's truly done something wicked. The point, though, for us is David doesn't do that in Psalm 22. Yes, the suffering unto death, and it's painful, yet he does not ask God to curse uh, or, or, or to kill or, or to harm these wicked people that are doing something to him. You know, Jesus suffered and died on the cross, and the centurion, Roman centurion, 
who was in charge of the crucifixion detail, we are told after Jesus is dead, he, he looks up and he's quoted as saying, truly, this must have been the Son of God. Don't know what the centurion was thinking, what exactly he meant by that. Jesus died on the cross for the very man who was in charge of nailing him up there. He doesn't call down curses on anybody when he's on the cross. He is there to die for their sins. So Psalm 22, in comparison to 32 and 35, is very different. And we see here in 22 what is called the righteous sufferer. He is righteous, but he's suffering unrighteously, and he shouldn't be suffering. He's suffering because of evil and wicked people. Now, this is poetry. We spend a lot of time on poetry. I'm not going to repeat it all, but I I do want to recap just a little bit. About a third of the Bible is written in poetry. There's hardly any poetry in the New Testament, so all that to say there's a lot, a lot of poetry in the Old Testament, and the Psalms is entirely poetry. And the Psalms were were written down, and they were often accompanied by music. Let's talk a little bit now, a little side trail, just a refresher though. We have two kinds of writing, poetry and prose. Prose is your average boring writing. You have to write an essay, you know, first day of school for your teacher, English teacher, what I did on my summer vacation. Okay, you just write it up. Poetry is different. Poetry typically, poetry is different, different cultures, different languages. So what we know in English, uh, poetry typically is in the form of meter. Iambic pentameter was very popular. Da, 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 da. And they do that five times. What needs my Shakespeare for? His honored bones. All right. So we have meter. And in English, typically the the last word of a line will rhyme with the last word of the next line. Hebrew poetry is a little different. Uh, how they arrange the lines and how each line of the poem reflects on the one before it or after it. Um, so they could write in an acoustic. So each line could start with a, a different alpha, a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And and that would be a mnemonic thing to help you to memorize it. Uh, they often would write poetry in, in a chiasm where the first verse of, this, of the poetry would parallel the last verse. The second verse in the poetry would parallel the second to the last verse. And you'd keep going through the poem and you'd come up with one lone in the middle verse. And that would be the key point. All right, just to say... Poetry means different things in different cultures. Now, here's something that is always the same, though, is the use of metaphors, symbols. What you can do with poetry, you can't do with prose. Poetry can generate emotion, images, convey, you know, just a couple words can convey a whole, whole lot and you can take people places with poetry that you can't do uh, with prose. 
The downside, though, is that every culture uses different metaphors, different descriptions. Now, the people who were the intended audience would have understood these metaphors. They're sometimes hard for us, especially in the case of David. He wrote it 3,000 years ago in ancient Hebrew. I've used this example before. I'll I'll make it brief, but I want to use a poem that is uh, very famous. Uh, It's called High Flight, and it was written in 1941 by a man, uh, John Gillespie McGee, Jr. And we're going to see in this, I'm not going to read the whole poem, but it's, I think, a little easier for us to understand these concepts if we look at one in English, all right? So John Gillespie McGee Jr. Um, was, his parents were uh, very uh, influential, high, well-off people who became missionaries uh, probably right around 1900. Uh, and uh, they were in China. Things were getting bad. Mother was English. Father was an American. And the mother took the kids, uh, John, Johnny Jr. was the oldest, back to uh, England. He does three years of high school in England. And then they go to America. By the way, Dad stays in China. They go back to America. The Blitz hits. And the Blitz, by the way, is when the Germans are busy, Nazis bombing England. And they're not able to get back. And so so John Jr. finishes his senior year in a private high school in uh, Connecticut. And he he finishes it, and he is supposed to... We, he's, uh, he's, he's been enrolled and accepted to go into Princeton. But he doesn't go. He hops a train and goes to Canada. Now, in my day, we'd say, oh, he's a draft dodger. No, 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 no. He actually went to Canada for the purpose of enlisting. So he enlists in the Royal Canadian Air Force, gets into the flight cadet program, successfully gets through, earns his pilot wings, gets commissioned. He is now part of the Canadian Fighter Pilot Squadron, which is sent to England for the rest of the duration of the war. And so he is now in England. He's in the, you know, he's a fighter pilot. And, you know, it's probably time to talk to mom and dad and explain why, why he didn't go to university. So he writes him a letter. He does something else, though. He writes a poem. Now, the high flight was not on it. That was added later. He wants to describe to them the joy of flying. Friends, this is one of the most moving things. The... Um, the Canadian Air Force and the British Air Force, this is their official poem because it's so emotive about flying. It can convey things about flying you just can't do in prose. And so he, I'm going to give you now, talk about a metaphor. So I'm I'm going to read just the first two lines. And there's an interesting metaphor. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the sky on laughter silvered wings. You know, anybody that's been alive in the last hundred years, there's a metaphor here. We'd understand. This laughter silvered wings, these are the wings of an airplane. We got that. Now, if you could take this poem and go back 200 years or 1,000 years and you'd read it, people would go, what is he talking about? They have no idea what this metaphor is. They've never seen an airplane. And how can you slip the surly bonds of earth? All right, They would not have understood it. In the same way, 
when we look at the Old Testament, they're going to use metaphors, for instance, and I used this before, Isaiah 28, verse 1. Woe to you, the land of the whirring wings. Well, there's no airplanes, so those aren't airplane wings. And again, I, I, I know one wit out there that said, oh, this is a prophecy against America because the wings are helicopters, which are used to, you know, go to war and kill people with. No, that's probably not what it meant. Most scholars say that the Isaiah 28 verse 1, the land of whirring wings, the whirring wings are insect wings. This is probably a reference to northern Egypt where you have a lot of rivers and you'd have a lot of insects. I'm just saying we, we have to spend some time with metaphors to make sure we understand. Um, all right, I'm not going to read the rest of this, but talking about metaphors, and, and we'll see that in Psalm 22, and poetry can do something else. It can convey two meanings. Prose can't do that, okay? Prose, what it says is what it says. But you can do that. Now, I'm going to go back to this high flight poem because it's in English, and we can kind of... So you read through this, and, and, and I won't do it, but it's just an incredible, just a moving a piece of work about the joy of flying. So you get to the last two lines. I'll do the last three. And while with silent lifting mind, I have trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. Well, what is that? You know, I've said not only is this important to the Brits and to the Canadian, our Canadian cousins, and I actually do have Canadian cousins. Um, it's, it's something that moved uh, the U.S. Air Force in. that This is something that cadets their first year, they have to memorize this. And I remember at 17 trying to memorize this. And um, I kept wondering, what that last line, put out my hand and touch the face of God. I always kind of wondered about that. As I was preparing to teach and to go through some of this stuff, and I was doing some research, um, I discovered that today, nowadays, people, the, the scholars, okay, um, they actually think that high flight has two meanings. On the face, it, it is, a, is a poem about the joy of flying, but it is also an allegorical journey of dying and going to heaven. And you're going, what? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're putting out your hand and touching the face of God, you're kind of probably dead, right? Um, so now here's where we go back to Johnny Jr. Johnny uh, was, um, he, he had established, even when he was going to, uh, to high school, uh, in England, that he was an extremely gifted writer and that he wrote poetry. You know, if, if he had lived, he obviously would have uh, been teaching at some university or been a poet laureate somewhere. And you say, yeah, but what about this dying stuff? Well, in fact, he did. He died three years, excuse me, three months after this poem was written. Now you say, well, that's a coincidence. Yeah, well, it's not. His 
last year in high school in America. I said his family was wealthy, right? So he bought a sports car. His dad, who again was a very famous person, uh, was a missionary, and he was one of the heroes in Nanking during the rape of Nanking in 1939-ish. And he's home now. And Johnny Jr. is a senior. He's got a sports car. He discovers liquor. And he starts chasing uh, cheerleaders. Okay? He's, he's a real good-looking guy. He comes from a family of wealth and money. And at some point, Dad takes him aside and says, <laughs> um, uh, John, look, um, you, you can't drink and drive, all right? You, you're going to wreck the car. You're going to hurt yourself. You, you might hurt somebody. You might kill somebody else, you know? And what Johnny said to his dad came back to haunt his father for the rest of his life. Johnny said, Dad, my generation isn't going to live very long. What did, what did Johnny Jr. know? Did, did he write this? Yeah, he wrote it about flying. But is he sending another message? People talk about that. It's, it's, it's a conjecture, right? Now, in this case, we don't know. Um, but it, looking at this poem kind of helps us to understand that we have to look at the metaphors and realize that something can have two meanings. Now let's go back to Psalm 22. David writes this. He begins in the first person. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's personal. It's about him. Many of the psalms have superscripts where they explain the circumstance on which the psalm was written. Like, you know, David wrote this after the prophet Nathan came to him to chast, you know, with God's chastising for the, you know, the Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite incident. We don't have any of this, so we don't know. As we read about David's life elsewhere in the Old Testament, you know, there doesn't seem to be a particular incident that he's referring to. So we don't know what he's referring to, but he writes in the first person. So there is something personal here, a personal experience he had. Yet, friends, I I think as I read the New Testament, and then I I read these words here, you can see, oh my gosh, (laughs) Psalm 22 is reflecting the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Did David know that he, he, you know, David was um, a warrior. He, he was a poet. Uh, you know, he, he was a singer of songs. He, he could play musical instruments. Uh, he was terrible at administration. He wasn't a very good judge. He never liked to do it. And he was a horrible father, okay? So he had a lot of good things and bad things. But he, he was a part-time prophet, really. What does... Is he writing this knowing that he's writing about Christ? Well, what we do know about Scripture is all Scripture, as in all Scripture, including this, is God-breathed. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So as the man or person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So his writing is inspired by God. So whether he consciously or unconsciously wrote, clearly God intended for him to write. And as you're going to see, it's important 
that he writes this because by Jesus referring to it on the cross before he dies, he is telling you what he's going through. He's not saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You pulled the wool over my eyes. No. He is giving a great, he is pointing us to this great psalm of faith in the face of certain death, but still having trust and confidence in God. Um, Psalm 22 goes in basically four movements. So the first movement is, so remember, 31 verses. So first movement is verses 1 through 11. It is a fervent prayer from one who is forsaken and is suffering greatly. God's not answering him, and he's suffering greatly. And as the psalm goes on, it, it's clear it's to the point of death. Now, as I said, uh, poetry, uh, in Hebrew poetry, we tend to have the same idea said more than once, maybe in different words. And, and we see that certainly in Psalm 22. So in these 11 verses, we have, we have two cycles. In the first cycle, in the prayer, the fervent prayer of the one forsaken, there's two things that come out, pain and trust. David describes his pain, and, and he follows that with an affirmation of faith and trust. So he starts out with, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. He's, he's crying all day long. He's groaning, you know, please save me. But yet, he says, you are holy, 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 and righteous. If God is holy, 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 and righteous, he can do no wrong. So although David is suffer, suffering, he knows that God is holy. God is not doing this for no reason. He's holy. And it says, and David acknowledges that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Enthroned. He is king. He is sovereign over all creation. So all his actions are holy, and he has enough power to do anything. And so that is what David begins to appeal to. And that takes him in to the first reason for his trust and confidence in God. In you our fathers trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out, and you rescued them. They trusted in you. They were not put to shame. But I am but a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. So his first reason for trust and confidence is the history of the Jewish people. When they put their trust in God, God rescued him. And so he's saying, you're not here and I'm forsaken, but I know that you are holy and enthroned and sovereign and you have always saved the people when they put their trust in you. And that's the basis of why I continue to trust in you. So that, that is the first cycle. The second cycle, this is actually 6 through 11, David again describes his pain. Uh, and it describes all the mocking 
uh, and we read those in the New Testament. But this time, the basis for his trust is his own life since he was born. God has always taken care of David. When he's a shepherd boy, God rescued him from the bear, from the lion. God gave him victory over Goliath. God saved him over and over when he was chased by King Saul and his men. And so based on that faith and trust when God has always been there back to the day he was born, he now appeals to that as well. So suffering greatly. So you've got two bases for saying, but I'm going to still trust and have confidence even though you're not here. The next movement is verses 12 through 18. We call this the, the lament and the suffering king. And this too is presented in two cycles. So again, Hebrew poetry, we tend to repeat ideas. That's part of the emphasis. Now here we get into a lot of the metaphors. And this uh, first one is 12 through 15. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bashan was an area where a lot of the breeding for bulls took place. They open wide their mouths at me. Now, the deal with bulls is they have horns and they can kill you, right? They open up their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. Now we get into a description, and this sounds remarkably like what is reported about people who are dying in crucifixion. He says, my heart is melted. It is melted like wax within me. My strength is dried up. You know, we, we see pictures of uh, like a crucifix. You see Jesus hanging on the cross with a, uh, a loincloth. Well, friends, that's not how they were crucified. They were crucified naked, which is why all his clothes were being divided up. Crucifixion was the most horrible, horrible death because it was slow and agonizing. The weight of your body pulled you down which made it impossible to breathe. So you'd have to, the best you could, put your, your heels or, or, or your legs, try to put it against the cross to try to lift your body up long enough to get a breath. But you could only stay up and then you'd get tired and you'd fall down. So it's like you're constantly drowning, asphyxiated. It's kind of like waterboarding, okay? You constantly think you're drowning. And eventually, of course, you just stop breathing and suffocate to death. And so a person's body, all their joints are pulled out of place as they're hanging. And this is what it's described. And, and there is no strength because you keep using your strength to, to try to lift up and it just gets worse and worse. And then it says his tongue, excuse me, his tongue sticks to his jaws. It, there is no water and your tongue is just stuck up there. It, you... you you lay me in the dust of death. So he describes his enemies and he describes his suffering, which again matches the crucifixion. The second cycle here, the lament, is verses uh, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, the case of Jesus' hands and feet were pierced by nails, but this is a metaphor, really, for having your hands and feet pierced by the teeth of the dog. Dogs are scavengers. 
they're waiting for him to die. They think it must be pretty close because as soon as they think he's dead, they are going to now bite his hands and his feet, you know, to eat him. He says in 17, I count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. This is the company of evildoers. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Again, did this happen to David, or is he using these metaphors to describe whatever his terrible suffering is? But one thing is really clear. If the evildoers are now dividing up his clothing and casting lots, he is as good as dead. Notice, too, we have these metaphors. We have the the wild oxen or, or bull. We have the lion, and then we have the dog. Now, in this cycle, they're reversed. First, he talks about the dog, all right? And then he will go on, and we'll see that in just a moment, and he talks about the lion and the wild oxen. Again, these are uh, a way of writing uh, Hebrew poetry to emphasize. So, again, we have two rounds in this lament where he describes his enemies and his suffering. Now we're going to go on to the third movement, and this is verses 19 through 21. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. So now he's praying, save me, save my life. O O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, we have the reverse, okay? We go dog, lion, and wild oxen or bull. The idea is horns. It's interesting. This time he throws in another illusion, and that is uh, deliver my soul from the sword. And, of course, Jesus, after he died, they take a uh, spear and push it through his stomach and into his heart. Verse 21, as I said, is the the change point here. This is where the psalm... um, I had read to you from the English Standard Version. I I tend to think that is um, a good version to use. If you have another version, it may be arranged slightly different. And I think the different arrangement actually makes more sense to us us English speakers. So I'm going to read 21 again, and there's three clauses here. We're going to rearrange them. Okay, because David has talked about being saved from the power of the dog and the sword, saved me from the mouth of the lion. In the middle it says, you rescued me, and then he continues, from the horns of the wild oxen. Many translations put, you have rescued me at the end. And that kind of flows a lot better. Deliver my soul from the sword, from the dog, from the lion, from the wild oxen. New statement, you have rescued me. Actually, the Hebrew word here is better translated, you have heard me, you have heard my prayer. So all this stuff that he's just gone through, all the doubting, not the doubting, all of the anxiety over being forsaken, but maintaining his trust and confidence, apparently he is, God answers him here. Now how would God answer him? By rescuing him. So that is why the, the translators used rescued. From here on, the rest of the psalm changes. It's actually now a praise in light of answered prayer. Let's go back and make some comments about 21, though. David's life is rescued. Jesus dies. 
But God answers Jesus' prayer because Jesus is resurrected to eternal life forever and ever. He is rescued, just not in the way we think. David now has the last 21 through 31, the last movement. He gives three cycles, uh, the three circles of ever-expanding praise of God for the rescue. He starts out by saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's the first cycle. Because of the answered prayer and rescuing David, he is going to praise God in front of the congregation. Then he turns to the congregation and he says, I am calling on you to praise the Lord. Praise God for what he did to me. This is 23 through 26. Yeah. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Friends, we as believers, we should be fearing God. So he's addressing us as well. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Well, we are not necessarily the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we are blessed through Abraham. Okay, remember chapter 12, in that verses 1 through 3 of Genesis. David continues here in verse 24. For he, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. So, first circle of praise is David praising God publicly in front of believers, or the congregation of Israel. Then he goes to the congregation, he says, you need to praise him too. Um, you know, he, he saved your king. Now we go to the last movement, and this is the largest and greatest circle. David calls the world at large to praise God, and he anticipates that the world will turn to worship God. I'm going to read 27 through 31. For all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Yahweh. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Yahweh. He rules over the nations. So not only is God enthroned and sovereign and holy, he actually is enthroned over all the peoples of the world. He, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Verse 29, he has an interesting metaphor. And he says, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, worship God. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Again, doing now with poetry, which can't do well with prose, he has given us a spectrum. In, on either end of the spectrum, all right, there are two kinds of people. At the one end are the uber-wealthy you know, uh, you know, these are the billionaires, the CEOs. Uh, these are the people who have all the money, all the cars, the yachts, you know. And, you know, they're busy eating lobster. I, I don't know. 
caviar. They will worship God. Now we go to the other end of the spectrum. We have the person who is dying in a hospice who has hours or days to live, pumped up on morphine because he can't keep himself alive and neither can anybody else. And David is saying all of humanity since the beginning of time and, and to the end of time fits on this spectrum and you will worship God. And then he calls and he says, posterity shall serve him. Now here we go. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. You know, I, I don't even know where David is in all this, okay? I mean, I'm just seeing Christ. I, when he's writing this, I don't know what he's thinking. Clearly, he's being moved along by the Holy Spirit because in these last two verses, David acknowledges that all people, from the highest to the lowest, will serve and worship God because of what he did in Jesus Christ. And this story about Jesus, which he calls us to our attention, will be told we are going to tell it to a coming generation. We're going to tell it to our children, our, our grandchildren. And they, in turn, 31, they are going to proclaim it to a people yet unborn. You know, there were no Canadians or Americans when this stuff was written. We were people unborn. Yet, somebody's children and grandchildren hold so-and-so and what, and it comes to us. And until the Lord comes again, we are called to tell this message. This righteous person is suffering unrighteously because of wicked people. Not because of anything he did. This is the Christ. And Jesus is calling this to our attention, saying, by waiting to the end to say it and calling attention to Psalm 22, he is going, I had faith and confidence in God the Father throughout the last six hours of the most horrendous suffering in time. He will rescue me, just as he rescued David. And then Jesus dies. And then three days later, there's an empty tomb. So this is a gospel message here. And he's calling this to our attention, he has faith and trust until the end. An encouragement, obviously, for us to have faith and trust in our trying times. I want to make sure we know and understand what, what we're trying to say here today and what we should or shouldn't do. Poetry allows us to say something that has meaning at the time it was said. And it also allows the author to have even a greater meaning. And we see that over and over in Scripture. In seminary, they kind of refer to this as the already, not yet. Isaiah often uh, has a prophetic word, and it's going to be fulfilled. You know, a, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. Well, most of the scholars think this is actually begins as a reference to a woman he's not yet married, who, who within a short time he will marry and she will have a child. So in that sense, he's being told, you know, you're going to get married, you're going to have a family. 
But it has a, so fulfilled in his, his time, his lifetime. But clearly that is used and referred to by the authors of the gospel to say, and it had a greater meaning. Okay, it points to Christ. We often call this uh, type. Um, we saw that in not just poetry, but in the, <clears throat> the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis, where a substitutionary sacrifice takes the place of Isaac, just as Christ took our place and suffered for us on the cross. All right, so that is what poetry can do. Let's make sure we know what, what I'm not saying. Don't just read Scripture and go, well, I think I see a double meaning there. I'm going to give you some examples. Um, you know, I was reading something here a while back, and somebody's saying, well, you know, I really like Donald Trump, and I read Scripture, and, and he sure looks like, like, like King Cyrus, the Persian. And, um, and, and, and I think that means we should vote for him. No, that's not what it says. That has nothing to do with current politics. Um, gee, I read Acts chapters 1 and 2, and, and the disciples had everything in common. So, so that, that's, that's biblical basis that we should be communists, or at least socialists. No, no, that's, that's not what it says. There's an infamous uh, cult leader, um, David Koresh. He... Uh, he had started a cult and had a commune, I don't know, something, in Waco, Texas. And uh, he was a terrible guy. He, uh, he was a polygamist and he, uh, he was a pedophile. And uh, the FBI went in and in order to save all these children, they ended up killing them with guns and flamethrowers and tanks. Okay, a bad day for FBI. David Crush was not a nice guy. He was a bad man, and people have commented how he, he clearly was obsessed with sex, and much of his preaching, he would read something in the Old Testament, and somehow that related to, to sex. Well, clearly, it's not what it was referring to. My point here is, if you read Scripture, it should always point to Jesus, the writers of the New Testament understood that by saying, okay, you know that thing in the Old Testament? Look, it, it's fulfilled in Jesus, or it prefigures Jesus. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. And if you're reading Scripture and, and you get something else out of it, you, you need to take a, take a break, take a time out. If you're sitting under a teacher or a preacher who is finding meaning in Scripture that doesn't point to Jesus, you need to find a different preacher or teacher. I think we're kind of done. I don't know that I'm going to do anything more on, on poetry, but I think we've done enough of the Old Testament here at the moment so that we get an idea um, of different things that are going on and how we can see the gospel here. You know, as you listen to this and you go, wow, <laughs> you know, it's like taking a, a drink out of a fire hose with a Dixie cup, all the stuff you're throwing out. Yeah, I, I know that, but slow down. And... I want to give you enough that you're interested. Friends, go get a study Bible. You can get a study Bible that, you know, 
the typical high school graduate, you know, assuming you're not in an inner city or Baltimore, I guess what I heard, 70% of the seniors graduating can't read well. But, but seriously, uh, most high school uh, it, it would enable you to read well enough, to, and you can get a Bible commentary or, or a study Bible that it's easy to read and understand. I advise you to do that. Um, you know, and the more you study, you, you may want to get some that are you know, a little more elaborate. There are a couple of website ministries that I highly recommend that will help you as, as, you, as you dig into things like this. Um, and again, uh, gotquestions.org and the bibleproject.com. Uh, two excellent, I, I think, ministries out there that will help a person you know, be able to, to look at a psalm and say, gee, there's a lot of stuff going on here. I don't think I understand it. Well, they've got tools and things to help you go through that and to make sense out of it. Um, I think this is our 20th uh, episode that we've recorded. I did record one in the Philippines a year ago, but that got lost in the Great Fire, and I'm going to record that next week. Uh, and then we'll... What, what would be really helpful to us is um, if you could give us some feedback as to the content here. Is this helpful to you, not helpful to you? Um, I mean, that'll certainly help me to be better. Uh, and the management would like to know, uh, and, and the trustees uh, who, who run the, the ministry, you know, is the content uh, being edifying, building up our, our listeners? Now, you can go on to the uh, KTLF.radio, excuse me, the KTLF.radio website, and you can get to the contact tab, and you can fill that out, and, and that'll get to us. Or you can simply write station, like radio station, station at KTLFradio, one word, dot O-R-G. Station at KTLFradio, one word, dot O-R-G. If you could give us some feedback, that would be very, very helpful. Friends, I'd like to uh, close us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your words. I thank you that we can read your words, and even though some of them were written 3,000 years ago, you have given us the help and the study to show us Jesus. It's always Jesus. We thank you for David and for how the Holy Spirit worked in him to help us better understand what was happening on the cross. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.